Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. ...called Surprise the World, and it's been all about developing habits and rhythms in our lives that create opportunity for us to share the hope that we have in Jesus. If you've been in church for a while, and I know some of you have, you may recognize the word evangelism, which means to announce the good news or to tell people the good news. And maybe when you hear the word evangelism, maybe it brings to mind some particular mental images or maybe even some memories for you. If you've been in church a while, maybe you've been involved in some efforts like street preaching or door knocking campaigns, or maybe you've been somebody who has received door knocking at your door where somebody has been trying to speak to you in the middle of your day about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's a beautiful thing. And churches have certainly tried all sorts of strategies and methods to publicize the message about the salvation offered through Jesus. And there are some Christians, there are some Christians who are specifically, uniquely, fortunately blessed with a unique spiritual gift for speaking preaching, teaching, and convincing people to listen to God's message. But one of the things we've been saying in this series is that it's becoming clear in today's culture and in the community that we live in that most people who are disconnected from Jesus aren't simply missing information. They're not disconnected from Jesus, by and large, because the information to have their questions answered is not available. It's not that they're missing information about how to be a Christian. What the unbelievers in our community are really missing is an experience of witnessing transformation, seeing their neighbors who are Christians who have been changed demonstrably, noticeably by Jesus. What I mean is this, most non-Christians in the West have access to plenty of information, online and otherwise, to learn about Jesus if they are so inclined, if they want to investigate the story and the claims of Jesus. But unfortunately, too often, people's perceptions of Christians in their community make the message of Jesus seem unappealing. When the church is perceived as being judgmental or power-hungry or irrelevant, it doesn't inspire unbelievers to say, tell me more about what's changed your life and made you like this. But what does seem to inspire that kind of inquiry, what does seem to inspire that kind of curiosity is when non-believers see Christians whose lives are so delightfully different that they wonder, how could that have happened? I so appreciated Allie telling the story of her dad, Dale, and his faith journey and how it was exposure to one Christian who seemed to be just so different than everybody else that prompted Dale's curiosity. Because the reality is that when the attitudes and actions of Christian people begin to pleasantly surprise our neighbors, 
That makes the message of Christianity attractive. That makes it appealing. That makes people lean in and say, tell me about how you are responding differently than everybody else. And that's what our series is all about. As a church family, we're trying to develop together the attitudes and the habits that would pleasantly surprise the people in the world around us who don't yet know Jesus. And so for the last few weeks, we've talked about getting into the habit of trying to perform significant, surprising acts of kindness and hospitality for others, blessing people through your good deeds in a way that seems not only not just routine, but seems generous. It seems over the top. It's something that catches their attention. And we've talked about creating opportunities to share meals with people for the sake of building connection and relationship and trust and sharing our lives because there's just something about eating together that communicates acceptance. And and it communicates value for one another, and it communicates interest and engagement. But I want to point out at this point in the series that acts of kindness and shared meals are not sufficient on their own for bringing people to faith in Jesus. And the reason for that is because the kind of journey that we're inviting people to take the kind of journey that we ourselves, many of us, have already begun and are inviting people to join us in, it's a kind of journey that requires divine intervention. We're talking about a life change that only God can accomplish. I mean, you may know some people who are disconnected from God, and you may know about the connection that they need, but only God is capable of drawing their hearts and putting the pieces in place and getting everybody together at the right moment under the right circumstances to get that process of life change started. And so today we're talking about what is, I believe, the most crucial element of helping people find their way back to God. And I'm going to invite you, I'm going to stop my, from my script here just a second. I want to invite you, as we enter into this next phase, I want to invite you to be thinking about some of the people that you have on your heart that need to know God's love for them. Some of you have heard me talk about this. I, I, have, I have a brother who's disconnected from God. And so when I when I talk about this, when I think about this topic, it's, it's not just theoretical for me. For me, I'm thinking not only of people who are trying to get connected here at Heritage, but I'm talking about the people I grew up with here, right? I mean, get that in your heart here. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the most crucial element of helping people find their way back to God. And it involves trusting God's process and trusting God's timing, and being on the lookout for where God is already at work in the, in the world and in the lives of people around us. We're talking about the role that prayer plays in the mission that God has given us to reach the people he misses the most. And so I want to invite you this morning to open up your Bible with me to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 10. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament portion of your Bible. And there's this incredible story that's recorded here about one family that needed help in a particular city and another man in another city who didn't have any idea who they were, but he got the call to come and help them anyway. And so Acts chapter 
chapter 10 starts by introducing us to a Roman military officer 2,000 years ago on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea named Cornelius. And Cornelius was, was a Gentile, which simply means he wasn't Jewish, but he was a, a man who worked for the Roman army. He was an officer. He was stationed with the Roman army in Israel in the city of Caesarea. He's living in this coastal, strategic, important city, and he's a foreigner living among Jewish people. He's there on assignment. And the Jewish people are typically not impressed or pleased to have he and his fellow soldiers there. The Jewish people, including the early Christians who were born in Judaism, they weren't used to associating with Gentiles any more than they had to. In fact, Jewish law and purity and ceremonial cleanliness regulations meant that they didn't interact any more than was absolutely necessary. They definitely didn't share meals with Gentile people. But we soon find out as we read into Acts chapter 10 that even though Cornelius wasn't Jewish, he was a man that was on a spiritual journey. He was a man that was curious, and he had been inquiring and learning more about this God of the Jews that sounded different than any other God he had ever connected with. And chapter 10 verse 2 says, Cornelius and all his family were devout and God-fearing. They gave, I'm sorry, he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. And just in this one verse, this one sentence, we learn a lot about Cornelius. We learn about how he handles his finances differently than everybody else in his culture. It was not uncommon for people to give to others, but typically that would be done giving generously to those who might be able to return the favor. Cornelius instead was someone who gave generously to those who were in need. And Cornelius had learned about the God of Israel, and he'd become a worshiper. He'd become somebody who, from a distance, was beginning to seek connection with this God of Israel and had developed a regular rhythm of prayer to God. And one day, while Cornelius is praying, something incredible happens. Imagine this man's situation and his circumstances. He knows, he knows that he doesn't belong to what is known as the people of God. He's an outsider looking in, but he sees how their God is different. And he's been reaching out as best he knows how, almost like shooting arrows into the sky here saying, God, I, I want to get your attention. He's spiritually curious, and so he's offering a prayer to the God of Israel, hoping to connect, and suddenly he gets an answer. In the middle of the afternoon, he has this vision of an angel that appears to him and says, Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God, which is a long way of saying God has noticed. God has noticed the spiritual journey that you are on. And verse 5 says, the angel told Cornelius, send some men to the city of Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. And I love this scripture because it shows just how much God was paying attention to Cornelius. He meets him right where he's at. Cornelius is searching for a God. He doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't have the background or the experience or the knowledge. He doesn't know all the answers. He doesn't pray in the way that all of the experts in the law would have taught him to pray. He doesn't even seem to know much yet about who he's praying to. But God sees him and makes an introduction. God says, Cornelius, I see the generosity of your heart. 
I've heard your prayers, and I know you're looking for something deeper. And so I'm going to connect you with somebody who has already experienced what you desire to experience. I'm going to connect you with my man, Peter, one of the very first followers of Jesus. I'm going to connect you with somebody who can help you find the answers that you seek. And meanwhile, 50 miles away in the city of Joppa, Peter's in the middle of this incredible season of ministry. He's been living in Joppa for a few weeks now, and every single day, every day since he got there, people have been converting and committing their lives to Jesus because they are seeing God work through Peter. They're watching miraculous healings that are happening. They're listening to his teaching as he retells the story over and over about how God has fulfilled his promises and prophecies in Jesus Christ. And so the day after Cornelius's vision in Caesarea, Peter is spending some time himself in prayer, 50 miles away in Joppa, and he gets a message from God too. He has this surreal vision about how God was removing ceremonial barriers that the Jews had always followed that had prohibited them from eating certain foods and associating with non-Jewish people. Peter sees this image of a large sheet being lowered down to earth by its four corners, and the sheet is covered with these living animals and reptiles and birds, particularly the kinds of animals that Jewish people had always been prohibited from eating. One of my preacher friends has given me a joke to share with you here, and if you like it, it's mine, and if you don't like it, it's his, but he says, this is the first recorded instance of pigs in a blanket. I, and I need, I need the rim shot from, from our drummer. But as this sheet comes down, Peter hears a voice telling him, kill and eat some of these animals, kill and eat. And that disgusts him. It repulses him. It offends him because he's never eaten any of these kind of animals. It's always been important to avoid these kinds of animals. But then the voice that was speaking to Peter in his vision says something that signals the beginning of an entirely new paradigm, a, a new age. And the voice says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now that's a big sentence and it's bigger than just food which is what Peter's going to start to realize. Because immediately after that sentence happens, immediately after this vision begins to conclude, downstairs there's a knock at the door at the house where Peter is staying. And at the door, there's three men who have been sent from Caesarea, sent from Cornelius to come and see if they can convince Peter to come with them. Acts 10:19 says, While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, there are three men looking for you, so get up and go downstairs and don't hesitate to go with them because I have sent them. And so he goes downstairs, he finds these three strangers, and because the Spirit had told him to be ready for this moment, Peter agrees that he's going to leave Joppa, the place where he's been participating in such effective and meaningful and dramatic ministry, and he's going to follow them to go and meet some stranger 50 miles away named Cornelius. And they travel for two days, and then they arrive at Cornelius' house, and when they show up, Cornelius has got a crowd gathered. It's like there's a party that's been waiting 
for Peter and these other guys to make their way. They've been steadily just waiting and anticipating Peter's arrival, and he's, ga he's gathered all of his relatives. Re Cornelius has gathered his close friends and the people in his extended family, and Peter's thoughts are just swirling here. I mean, this is the largest gathering of Gentiles that Peter's ever been in the middle of, and he's trying to keep up with everything that's happened, and so he just asks Cornelius, he says, how, how'd you find me? How did all this get started? What, what am I here for? What's this about? And Cornelius says, he says, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor, so send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. And I did. I sent for you immediately, he says, and it was good of you to come. And now we are all here. Listen to this sentence. Cornelius, sweeping his hand around the room, talking about all of the other people who have gathered, his close friends and his relatives. He says, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And suddenly Peter realized that he had stumbled into this golden opportunity to tell somebody about the hope that he, held, that he holds, to tell people about the hope that had filled his heart. It's like every preacher's dream, every evangelist's dream to say to, for a, a group of people who don't know anything about the story to come and say, would you please tell us? And so Peter starts telling them the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And while he's telling it, in the midst of the story, the Holy Spirit starts to tangibly engage the room and to fall on all of these Gentile people and to change their hearts and they begin to speak and tell their own testimony about God's goodness in their lives. And it says that they speak in tongues. They speak in languages that they don't even necessarily recognize. And they're all testifying about God's goodness. And a few minutes later, it says that everybody who heard Peter's message, everybody in the room, all of those relatives and all of those close friends of Cornelius were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a beautiful historical event, right? I mean, if, if you care about this kind of church stuff, this is a particularly significant story in the history of the church because it marks this moment when God swung the door wide open to the possibility that Gentiles could become Christians without becoming Jewish first. And that's big. It's a huge development. In fact, for the next few chapters in Acts, all of the Jewish background Christians are going to have to some serious conversation and some soul searching and some discernment together because they wanted to make sure that this is really what God was up to. But this is so much more than a historical story for us. This is so much more than just ancient history, and I hope you'll be able to connect the dots and see this as more than just the rehearsal of an episode in history. I want to help you make note of what God was up to in this story, because I think this story reveals something about God's activity in the world and God's invitation to us to be a part of his activity. You see, I believe God is still actively calling people who are disconnected from faith and inviting Christians to be a part of the process. Because if you pay attention to how this whole story played out, if you went back and you looked at all of the details and you read every verse, 
you would notice that this mass conversion event, this successful faith-sharing event, got started with prayer. You had Cornelius, the man who needed spiritual guidance, who's praying on his own at his house in Caesarea, and he doesn't really even know what to ask for, doesn't know much. He's just beginning to learn and inquire about who it is that he's praying to at all. And then you've got Peter, who's praying, and it appears that this is his regular habit to spend time in conversation with God. And he has the spiritual knowledge about Jesus that Cornelius needs, but he's praying someplace 50 miles away, and he's never met Cornelius, doesn't know who this guy is. They didn't know each other. But when they prayed, when they made themselves available to what God wanted to do with them, and when they asked God for guidance, God connected them to one another. And the result was that an entire houseful an entire extended family, an entire city block in Caesarea, an entire family full of Gentile people were converted to become followers of Jesus Christ. You know, growing up in church, for me, we talked a lot about prayer, but somehow, and it probably wasn't the message that they intended to communicate, somehow as I was growing up, I got the idea in my mind that prayer looks like talking to God. That it's primarily a presentation, just that, it, that, that it's, it's prose, that it's just speaking. And I want to tell you that as I've grown older and grown in my faith, and as I've learned from more spiritual mentors, and as I've learned to pay closer attention to some of the details of the Scripture and stories like this, I've come to understand that prayer was never intended to be a one-way conversation. That prayer is intended to be a dialogue. That prayer involves speaking and listening being still, being quiet, letting God have access to our hearts and our souls and our minds. In fact, as I've gotten older and learned to pay closer attention to reading the Scripture, what I've noticed particularly as I read through the book of Acts and these early stories of the first generation of Christians I noticed that listening to the prompting of God's Spirit was a crucial part of their ministry. That being quiet and paying attention and letting the Spirit lead the way was an important part of not only their effort and their strategy, but it was an important part of what made Christianity grow exponentially in just a few years. There's a story in Acts chapter 8, a couple of chapters before this. There's this disciple named Philip who receives specific instructions from an angel of the Lord. Go and travel on this particular road, the angel says. And when Philip is obedient to that because he listened to what God had to say, he goes and he finds himself on this road. And I suspect that road was probably pretty busy with traffic. But in the middle of all of the travelers, the people on foot, the people on horseback, the people in chariots, in the middle of all of that, Acts chapter 8 says that the Spirit of God told Philip, run towards that chariot right there. 
go be next to that chariot. And when Philip did it, he found a man in that chariot who was ready to become a disciple of Jesus and just didn't know how. Acts chapter 16, a few chapters after this, we find Paul and his entire missionary team, and they're choosing their next destination of where they're going to go and preach next based on what the Spirit tells them to do. And sometimes the Spirit blocks the way and says, don't go that way. And sometimes the Spirit says, this is where we're heading. And then later, Paul gets a vision, gets a dream from a man from a particular region saying, please come and teach us. And guess what? He shows up in that place and there's people that are eager and ready to receive. Eager and ready to hear the story. And what's amazing is that throughout the book of Acts, as the Christians prayed and listened to the Spirit's guidance, they kept running into people who were eagerly anticipating the good news that they had to share. How long has it been? How long has it been since somebody has asked you eagerly, to tell them about your faith. How long has it been since you showed up in a place and somebody said something like, we're so glad you're here. We've been waiting on you. We're all gathered so that we can hear you tell us what the Lord has commanded you to tell us. It hadn't happened to me in a while either. But I wonder I just wonder if maybe the difference is that we're not listening close enough. I wonder if we might be the kind of people who developed the habit of listening to God, of getting still and getting quiet and getting undistracted for a few minutes before God on a regular basis. If we became the kind of people who listened to God and said, God, Show me what you want me to do. Show me where you want me to go. Show me who you want me to talk to. Show me who you want me to connect with. Show me who you want me to eat with. Show me who you want me to serve. I wonder if we became the kind of people who listened to God like that, if we might discover that God has got some assignments that have been backlogged waiting on us to take, waiting on us to accept. I wonder, I wonder if we might find that evangelism, sharing our faith, telling other people the story of Jesus might not become something that sounds like such a dreaded or scary task, but it simply might, might begin to feel like the exciting pursuit of what's next with God. And so this week, I want to invite you to something. And some, some of you are already in this habit, and praise God for that. But if you're not in this habit of getting into a quiet, undistracted moment with God, I'm going to invite you to try it once this week. And, and it can be any time. It can be before the kids get up, you know, on a weekday morning or a Saturday morning. Or it could be, you know, on your lunch hour if you're by yourself. Or it could be in the evening if you have a few quiet moments after the kids have gone to bed. Or whatever it is in your schedule. It, it doesn't matter what time of day this happens. But the, but the key is to put yourself in a comfortable, quiet position where the noise is tuned out the best you can. You can put headphones on if you need, you know, noise-canceling headphones or whatever. 
but to put yourself in a quiet spot where you can make yourself available to God. Some of the spiritual mentors that I've learned from and some of the spiritual masters from centuries past have recommended some practices that can help you to center your attention, to focus your attention in a moment like that. Some people will use a, a prayer that's not, not about trying to talk to God, but it's about trying to focus your heart. It's a repetitive thing. It's something like, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or some might say multiple times, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Be still. Be still. Maybe it's just that kind of moment, not when you're trying to think of what to say next, but when you're trying to stop thinking of stuff to say. When you could get quiet before the Lord and say, God, I, 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 don't, I don't know the answers. And it's not obvious to me who the people are in my community that are ready to hear something about the hope that I possess but I believe, God, that you have been at work in the lives of people in our community who have not yet discovered Jesus. I believe, God, that you have been raising questions in the minds and the hearts of people who are looking for something deeper spiritually. I believe, Father, that in the midst of all of life's challenging and confusing circumstances, there are people in my community who don't yet know Jesus, but who would love, who would love to have the kind of connection that brings them the peace like I have. God, I believe you've been working in people's lives. And so show me what to do next. You may receive something specific. You might feel like it's just instruction about something general that you should be doing, or you might just find yourself just enjoying God's company with no agenda, no particular requests or items that you need to bring before God. You may just find yourself being quiet, but what I've learned to do for myself is to set a timer on my phone now say for the next five minutes for the next 10 minutes I'm just going to sit and be quiet and listen I'm just going to pay attention we've been sharing this experience together part of part of your church family our heritage missions committee for almost two years now we've been quietly asking God together about what God might have in store for us in terms of engagement with people beyond the borders of our community, beyond the world that we travel in and, and, and move around in every day, what God might have in store for us to be a part of the work of taking good news to people who have never heard of the message of Jesus. And it's been inspiring to us to hear story after story and to actually meet individuals who migrated or fled 
from Muslim background countries where they had never had access to Scripture, they had never heard preaching, they didn't know anything about who Jesus Christ claims to be, and yet in moments of suffering or moments of discouragement or distress in their lives, so many of these people claim to have had a vision of a man in white who said, I love you, and they immediately recognized this as Jesus, and they wanted to find a Christian to ask about it. It's an amazing, uh, it, it, it sounds so far-fetched, but I've heard it time after time after time from different people and people who, and I've heard it from people firsthand who tell about their own experience of how God was calling them and then put them in touch with someone who could help them learn more. I've heard story after story from Christian missionaries who have begun study with former Muslims who came to them saying, I saw Jesus in a dream. Tell me more. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in our community, but I'm confident I'm confident that there's not anybody that you're going to run into this week, not anybody you're going to have dialogue with or exchange emails with or have business lunch with or sit in a meeting with. There's not anybody you're going to encounter this week that God doesn't love desperately. Every single person you're going to run into is somebody that either already knows about God's love for them or hasn't yet discovered God's love for them. And I wonder... What if reaching our community has less to do with finding the right words to say and more to do with learning how to listen? More to do with paying attention to figuring out what God's already up to, where God's already at work around us, and being open to joining God there. There's something about reading these ancient stories about Peter and Paul and Philip, so many others, and how they had very few tools. I mean, can you imagine if they had had like social media, how quickly the word had got, could, would have gotten out? That'd be amazing. They had so few tools. They were traveling everywhere slowly on foot. They didn't have printed copies of any of the scripture. I mean, their only, their only tools they had was just what they had to say. Nothing was written down. None of this, no, nothing could be shared or texted or emailed. I mean, it, it, was, it was primitive. And yet, because they listened to what God told them to do and they went where God told them to go, there are very few times in history when the church grew and faith in Jesus grew like it did during the book of Acts. And y'all, may God get the glory for every good thing that happens. May God get the glory for every story of every life change. May God, it's, it's not, it's never ever been about growing some organization. It's not about growing heritage, anything like that. But it is about lives being changed. It is about hope being shared. It is about joy being caught. So may we be the kind of people who are willing to slow down, willing to be quiet and still, willing to pay attention, and willing 
to listen to what God might have in store for us. I'm going to invite you in the next couple of minutes to be prayerfully asking God to draw you in to that kind of connection, that kind of moment. I'm going to be asking you to be thinking about a specific time this week that you're going to try to target having some time in quiet if that's not a part of your regular routine already. I'm going to challenge you to get specific thinking about how am I going to make this happen? How can I carve out five minutes or ten minutes in a quiet spot and say, God, this time is yours?